And I'm Alexander Wales. And this is episode 9, Antagonists. So, first things first, we need to define what an antagonist is. Mm -hmm. And in any story, you have a protagonist who's your main character, and they want a thing, and there's something standing in their way. And if that thing standing in their way is a person, that person is the antagonist. So it's either someone who is themselves an obstacle or someone who makes it harder for him to accomplish their goals. Right. And you can, there are, there are a lot of different ways that you can play with that. Um, I think we're going to focus here on pure opposition because mm -hmm. it, it, it's fairly common to have like an antagonist who then turns around and becomes a helper later on after, after their defeat. But that, that turn is not that important. Right. And it, it doesn't show up all that often. We can reserve more complex anti-heroes or whatever the case may be for another episode. Yeah. If you have a primary antagonist, it's basically the, the story is done once that antagonist is defeated. Right. In a, a lot of stories. So antagonists, obviously, if they're, if they're going to be people, regardless of how that word is used, it's just something that is has a will of its own that's trying to oppose you, which means it's a character. It's not just part of the setting. Um, you know, a media can be defined as an antagonist, but it's not usually done so because it just means something different then. Yeah. If you start defining weird things like that as antagonists, the word starts to lose its meaning. Mm -hmm. um, I think here we'll focus mostly on single character antagonists. We'll, we'll talk a bit about multiple, having multiple antagonists in a story or having like institutional antagonists. I think that those are more, more easy to do once you've sort of established what an antagonist is and how you're going to build that antagonist and with a special focus on how to do that in a rational story, right? Yeah. A lot of stories have bad antagonists that are, are just, you, they don't have an ideology or their ideology is very shallow. Yeah. So let's start by looking at those kinds of antagonists, the shallow ones. It's worth noting that shallow antagonists can work in a story much better than shallow protagonists. You get away with a shallow antagonist if your protagonist is very complex and interesting, but it's harder to care about a story with a shallow protagonist unless the antagonist is incredibly engaging and complex. Alternatively, if the plot is engaging enough, you don't need either of them to be particularly complex. In my view, the best usually have all three, but you can make a compelling and entertaining story with a simple antagonist. Yeah, I, I don't... <laughs> I recall Speed, the original movie, I, I recall that having a bad antagonist. I can't even remember what his motivation was what what his whole motivation was but it, it was something not very memorable obviously like that the the important thing about speed was that there's a bus that has to like stay above a certain limit or bottom right. but it did have an antagonist in it right and and that's that's very common where you have uh this the sort of hook that you're that you're going into and then you know for two-thirds of the plot, the antagonist isn't even there for it. Mm -hmm. The antagonist can also be around as a as a, as a a presence, but not in the story. A lot of stories like Star Wars will have stormtroopers and, and a big antagonist like Darth Vader, but the main antagonist might be ultimately Emperor Palpatine, but he doesn't even show up until the second movie, and no protagonists meet him until the third movie. Yeah, and Darth Vader is the primary antagonist of the first movie. Right. But he doesn't. He has very, very little screen time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fairly wise because Darth Vader is not in the first movie. Like, if we take the first movie by itself and, like, don't think about the movies that come after that. Because that, that's, that's sort of how it was written. It wasn't written as 
planned out from the beginning, yeah. And Darth Vader is one of those antagonists that works better, I, I, in my view, works better the less of him there is. In a sense, like obviously you want him to be there in some respect and be a presence in the in the world, but you do, definitely don't want to over overexpose him. Part of his value as a unique antagonist is the mystery and the weight that he carries when he does show up. Yeah, and and in the first movie, like if we take the first movie alone, like 1977 and Star Wars just comes out and you watch that one movie, Darth Vader, you you don't like know anything about him right he doesn't have any defining features he's a very very shallow character but he still has he still has impact because of the things that you see him do you see him like choke out one of his subordinates and he like he moves with purpose and Mm -hmm. there's this sort of like mythology built up but he's not you don't know why he does the things that he does right and what little we do see of him it hints at wider mysteries it hints at more complexity that we don't quite glimpse there's the like the fact, for example, that he has such obvious command over the battlefield and and people around him until he has a conversation with Tarkin. Yeah. And Tarkin clearly has superior rank over him and is able to command him in turn. You you have this feeling of like, okay, this guy is clearly the more powerful and intimidating. Definitely above most of the villains that you see, the nameless stormtroopers and and random admirals. Um, but he's not quite the boss of of everything, and that is a, is a further further hook to his mystery, right? Because how can someone that's so powerful as he is not be the big bad? And what does that say about the antagonists as a whole? So it's it's a really well done use of a shallow villain to say, right. you know, he's not the most complex villain, he's not the most backstoried villain, but he still adds a lot to the story. Yeah, and I think Darth Vader gets complex, and there's there's a lot added on to him in movies yeah. five and six. Yeah, and absolutely. Obviously, the prequel series are sort of like delving really deeply into who Darth Vader is, and that that. Right, I'm of two minds on this particular example. Part of me feels like you can't do Darth Vader's character justice by by delving into the backstory. You will inevitably lessen him as a character. And part of me just thinks, no, that's bullshit. They just did a terrible job of it, and that's why I feel that way. Yeah. Like, I'm sure in the hands of a master storyteller, they could have done it wonderfully. But regardless, Darth Vader worked very well without the backstory. Not every villain does. Some villains that are that shallow, the shallowness really bleeds through. Yeah, and I think even in Star Wars, you see a lot of... If you're just watching the movies, a lot of the like shallow villains have been mm-hmm. sort of expanded on in, in, in the expanded universe and you know, TV shows and whatever. Right. I mean, that's a, the great comparison would be the Darth Vader of the first prequel, Darth Maul, even less depth, actually, because he has less lines. And it just comes across like, you know, as a kid watching that movie, I enjoyed his presence Yeah. as a villain, and I enjoyed the fight scenes that he was in. But his character is, is even less than non-existent. He has none. He's just a... He's a monster, essentially. He's he's not a antagonist so much as a hazard in the in the hero's way that's shaped like a man. Yeah. And, you know, he, I don't know, that, that's the sort of antagonist that you need a really good protagonist mm-hmm. to, to make the story work. Right. Because I think, I think uh, one of the things that Marvel does really well is that it has pretty interesting villains, or pretty interesting, I should say, antagonists, just because they, they do a lot of work of trying to, like, hook in against the protagonist. In, in the cinematic universe, uh, Marvel 
as a whole, I think has it's it's a it's a giant universe, so it has a lot of really bad antagonists. I I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with that. I would say actually that so far from what I remember, the Marvel universe's antagonists have been probably the worst part of all their movies, with the sole exception of Loki, who yeah. is who is I think definitely the best antagonist in the Marvel movies that I've seen. But all the villains from like even Thor's second movie, the villains for Ant Man, the villain for Hulk. Yeah. Yeah. They've all been even Iron Man's villains haven't been great. Okay, I think I agree with you. Yeah. Marvel doesn't have I, for me, like Marvel's heroes are kind of amazing. I love I love Marvel's heroes by and large. Whereas D C has a better rogues rogues gallery in my view. Yeah, well, it's it depends on who you're talking about. Yeah, so. it Superman obviously does not. Yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. So, who who are your favorite antagonists in all of fiction? Oh, uh, shoot. Okay, so all of fiction obviously includes books of which there are many, many, many. So I'm just going to limit per medium. My favorite villain from books. I grew up on Stephen King, and the multiverse that he wrote in had a villain that would show up here and there called Randall Flag. Um, sometimes it was called, he was called something else, but his RF were the initials usually that he went by. And he showed up in the Dark Tower series. He showed up in The Stand. He showed up in Hearts in Atlantis briefly. He showed up in Eyes of the Dragon. And he was basically this mysterious sorcerer. Like his powers, how much power he had waned and waxed depending on the on the story he was in. But in The Eyes of the Dragon, which, which was a medieval fantasy story, uh, he was basically known as the court's sorcerer. I think part of what made him one of my favorite villains is that I was reading this as a kid and it was the first time I've ever seen a villain written with personality and not just personality, but flaws that were not villainous flaws. I mean, flaws in the sense of, so there was a scene in eyes of the dragon where flag every so often the, the perspective would shift to flag as the bad guy and we'd see what he's up to. And there was a chapter where he was sick, like he caught the cold, and he's just kind of like in his dungeon, frustrated with plans not going exactly as he wanted, and wondering how to go forward with them, and also just heavily inconvenienced by his sickness that he was suffering through, just like a flu or something. And there was just something about seeing a villain suffer through the common cold that just humanized him so much, despite like all the monstrous things that he does, that it just really impressed me on how how three-dimensional it made his character just with such a minor thing and in the stand he's a cult leader sort of he's got a post-apocalyptic city that he's running which is basically the antagonist city to the good guy city that the protagonists are gathering in and forming and the people in his city aren't evil exactly some of them are but most are just weak-willed or afraid or attracted to his strength and purpose because he's very effective in running the city even without his dark magic but what King does is, he shows Flag make mistakes. An antagonist losing his temper and being too egotistic are pretty common flaws for villains, but King also shows him making realistic, understandable mistakes, and questioning himself, and just in general makes this truly evil person, this guy who's basically a demon in human form, still feel like a real person. It really impressed on me the idea, which I think comes from the art of war, but I could be wrong, the idea that victory comes not just from the choices of the victorious general, but also the mistakes of the defeated one. He goes on to do lots of amazing things in different stories, which make him one of my favorite villains, but that's probably the first thing that really jumped to mind um, when I think of what makes Flag such a unique villain for me. So I would have to say Flag for books. Yeah, for me, I think... I don't know. It's it's difficult to say, because I... There are there are very memorable villains that are like Darth Vader, right? Darth Vader is, is widely considered like one of the best villains of mm-hmm. of movies, but I don't. I think he's I think he's memorable, but he's not 
the best character. I think especially once you take the prequels into consideration, right? I just I don't I don't buy that story. I don't think it's a right, right. a great story. I have a deep fondness for the Terminator movies, but like the Terminator's not a character until he becomes protagonist. Mm-hmm. Right? He's just a a serial killer. So Lex Luthor is my favorite um antagonist. I think he Lex Luthor's a, a weird one because DC goes for this sort of mythology angle where like things change and people change all the time and it's not like the same is, character every time, yeah. Yeah, it it is one consistent story but they they just change things without explanation and they sort of float the timeline. So Lex Luthor is like sometimes a not very smart businessman and that's like his only thing. He's not a genius at all. There was a there was one Lex Luthor comic that was he like had this facial recognition thing. This was like in the 80s or something, but he had a facial recognition system that was like looked at Superman and was comparing it against like every face in Metropolis. And his computer system that he'd like hired someone to build for him. Uh, wait, wait, let me guess. Let me guess. It it got him the name Clark Kent, and he was like, "Oh no, it can't possibly be him." Yes. Oh, yeah. God. That was it exactly. And it's just like, okay, I get what you're trying there. It's just not. It's not clever enough right. for me. Um, it's not believable enough, certainly. Right. But uh, Lex Luthor, when he's done correctly as a sort of human without any powers mm-hmm. opposing Superman, I think that he is one of DC's best. One of DC's best. Right. Best. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, there was a great line from the Justice League series. It might have been Justice League Unlimited. People thought he was trying to become president, and it was some long-winded Xanatos gambit that he was doing. And the question at one point confronts him, evidence that He's been doing some shady shit, obviously, and says something like, you'll never become president now. And Lex basically, like, breaks free of his hold and and uses some technology to essentially beat down uh, the question. And says, you fool, you you think I really want to become president? Do you have any idea how much power I'd have to give up to become president? And that really, like, gave me a window into just, like, how a really good Lex Luthor villain sees the world. Because he has power that is so great in his own sphere that things like becoming president are, are a step down for him. Yeah. And there, there are a lot of ways that uh, the character of Lex Luthor has been, in my view, mishandled mm-hmm. by people. Um, even when he's supposed to be like this, you know, this genius billionaire. Right. Um, he Like sometimes he just builds a power suit and goes to fight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hand to hand. And like, why <laughs> you're, you're stripping away all of the good things about Lex Luthor and you're just making him into like Zod, mm-hmm. right? He's not he's not being any more complex by Zod if he's just putting on a battle suit to go toe to toe with Superman. Like I don't mind I don't mind Lex Luthor having a battle suit if it's like I need this battle suit because I live in a world full of super powered villains and heroes and and you right. know like I right. want to be able to survive if one tries to kill me, but I don't want him taking the power suit to, to punch out Superman. That's just dumb. Right. Yeah. I'm fine. I'm fine with him having a battle suit. I'm fine with him like trying to give himself powers. That's mm-hmm. You know, whatever. That's an intelligent thing to do in a world of metahumans, in my view. Yeah. And then the other thing that that they do with Lex Luthor sometimes is he just he, he puts these plans into motion that make no sense, mm-hmm. and then they inevitably fail. And it's like, well, okay, so he's just a billionaire. He's mm-hmm. he's not a billionaire genius. Right, right. He just he's happens just to have a, a lot of money. He just has a lot of money that he can throw at these terrible plans that aren't going to accomplish his goals unless he gets like really lucky. Yeah, and. 
the Jesse Eisenberg was probably the worst Lex Luthor I've seen ever. Like, I haven't read all the comics, obviously. I'm sure there were worse examples, but but at least the Jesse Eisenberg Lex Luthor had a plan of some sort and somehow like accomplished it, even though it was all hand wavy. Like we don't know how he accomplished it because it was not on screen. Like he figured out who Superman was, and I can only assume that he used the tactic that you outlined in your story which is like a brilliant way to figure out who Superman is. But of course they don't say that. So you just have to assume like, oh, he used his amazing resources and, and brilliant mind to deduce who Superman was because it's obvious or whatever. But yeah, it can be really mishandled a lot of different ways. And like that the example that you gave of, of the facial recognition machine, that he just discounts the result. Like a way to make that interesting would be to be like, as a villain, you can't model the hero appropriately. Kind of like one of one of Quirrell's... Um, major flaws in, in HPMR. So if if Lex Luthor thinks, like, Superman can't possibly go around pretending to be a mild-mannered reporter all day because that's not what I would do with that much power, um, that wouldn't be the most interesting Lex Luthor, but at least it would have a reason for him not to... Yeah. A reason for him not to believe that. It's an interesting failure mode yes. of thinking. Opposed to just being like, oh, no, that can't be Superman because he's... Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's just lazy villaining. Yeah. You want a villain who's you want a villain who's smart enough to not make mistakes that the reader wouldn't make because if the reader ever feels like they know better than the villain or they they they're smarter than the villain, the villain loses their threat, which I think kind of brings me to the first point I want to make about villains, which is the antagonist has to be threatening. That's their point. Like if they if they if they're not seen as competent and smart and, you know, a threat to the the goals of the protagonist, what what use are they? Yeah, if the central conflict of your story is the antagonist in some way, I mean, if your antagonist is not threatening, then you don't have the conflict that's supposed to be driving your story. Right. And, and you can you can do a story without conflict um, if you really want to, or with like very low um, or easily solved conflicts, uh, but probably don't. Try, um, tr- try to try it with a try it with a conflict first. See how it goes. Yeah. Um, so I I as a general rule I think um, antagonists should be more powerful than protagonists. Yep. Um, you also uh, because um, so Sanderson's uh, first law is basically that um, magic can't be used to resolve conflicts unless the reader understands it really well, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But you can use magic to create conflicts without explaining it to the reader, basically. You can have antagonists who do crazy, powerful stuff, and that can be a lot more interesting than than if you give a protagonist uh, a power like that. Right. right, because you're 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 using your antagonist to generate all this conflict, and then it then then you're giving the protagonist something to do in in trying to solve it, in trying to like work uphill. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, for Metropolitan Man, that's that's why it's from Lex Luthor's viewpoint, because right, that's how right. I always thought. You know, if I were going to write a Superman story, I would not, I wouldn't use Superman because like you have to put conflicts in front of him that. That he, he he has to rise up to meet. Superman's conflicts have to be moral or intellectual. They can't be physical. Um, right. Otherwise, you would just end up with with 
Aspel's like the lift lift a island of kryptonite because he needs to. Yeah. So if Lex Luthor is the main Superman villain, which he has, you know, he clearly is, he has to be smarter and not just smarter, but so smart that Superman can't outpunch his his plans, which, you know, is is really hard to do because Superman's powers are so wide ranging. But it's definitely the best kind of villain to put to someone like that, and that's it's definitely why it's so hard to write a good story with such a powerful character as Superman, because then the villains have to be that much better than them in some way, and that much harder to write. Writing an intelligent character is hard. Writing a character intelligent enough to stop Superman is, is even harder. Yeah. Um, and that's that's sort of the reward of writing smart characters, mm-hmm. is that you're doing something that's more Challenging. more difficult. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I definitely agree. You need You need powerful antagonists I mean, relative to your protagonist, yeah. right? Um, they need to have advantages of some sort um, that you can you can do, definitely do it on an even playing field. I've been watching uh, I've been watching this anime about cycling, mm-hmm. uh, and then the, these like high school kids are in this road cycling like bicycle club, mm-hmm. um, and so like everyone starts sort of on the same playing field they all have the same bikes basically they all like the the same equipment and stuff and so like the the differences in like skill level are very minor Mm -hmm. and and i think that works that works really well if you're if you're doing like a a smaller story right right the small scale story can have a villain and an antagonist that's just opposed to the protagonist in, in basic ways yeah trying to win a road race yeah and it you know the stakes are are fairly low there, but and honestly, like that's one of the situations where it's easiest not to make the antagonist a total void of character, not not even total void of character. So one thing that I see way too often that I dislike is that antagonists often kick the puppy straight up evil people that you can't empathize with at all. And if the scales are small, like for goodness sake, don't make the antagonist a straight-up villain. You know, like, if if, if their goal is to just win a bike race against your protagonist, what's the point of also making them, you know, like, a cruel and miserly person who, like, just wants to cause suffering to others, and once he loses the race, tries to kill the protagonist or something like that? Yeah. Because, like, that's a great opportunity to have an extra interesting character in your story and have your protagonist have to deal with the interesting character that's opposed to them. Yeah, and I think the the empathy angle is more important if you're doing those. Part of the reason that authors include the kick the puppy thing is to just up the sensation of conflict, mm-hmm. right? It's it's you know you have a good character and an evil character, so you want to make the evil character a lot more evil, and then that that increases the feeling of conflict, even if the conflict itself is the same. But I think that you get more interesting, better conflicts if there's some empathy for. What they're trying to do is shortcut the process of making you care about the antagonist being defeated. Yeah. But that's just a one-dimensional caring. If you can make the antagonist empathetic, you care twice as much. Because not only do you care about them being defeated, you simultaneously don't necessarily want them to be destroyed utterly. You know, like... Um, a great example of this might be in, obviously, the Game of Thrones has a series, A Song of Ice and Fire has some amazing um, characters all around. It has very few out-and-out villains and very many antagonists, because the, 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 the main characters the story focuses on can often be considered the protagonists, but some of them are not 
the most savory kind of people. Yeah. But there, but there are some cases where you legitimately care about people on both sides of a conflict, and you might want one side to 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 win over the other side, but you don't want them to completely wipe them out and crush them because then what happens to the character you care about on that side? Yeah. So kick the puppy. That it's a shortcut to make the villain automatically evil so that you're trying to hope that the the readers and viewers just are engaged enough to want them stopped because they're so heinous but at the same time like that's fine as a kind of villain but you you, you if you can make a a empathetic villain too you have twice as much engagement in the story yeah and i will say that if you do like there are different ways to do an evil antagonist um or one one that the you know I think that you can do an evil character that the audience um, like understands and rejects their thought process. Right. And that's going to be a lot more powerful than, you know, he kicks the puppy just because he's evil. Right. People don't people get that because that's like a, a story trope. Oh, this guy's just a dick. It's better if your evil comes from a place that people can can recognize. Yeah. Right. If like the evil character is a reflection of the reader's own like base impulses. I think, I think it's really, um, if you're constructing a, like an evil antagonist who is supposed to be rejected, I think drawing from the real world is really helpful. Cause like, you know, th there are people out there who have viewpoints that you disagree with, like, um, that that like 99% of people disagree with. Uh, and you can, you know, I, I used to be really big into uh, true crime stories. Um, so like there are actual serial killers and like you can read interviews with them and like figure out. What makes them so uh, deviant? Yeah. What makes them so deviant and serial killers are, you know, they're a corner case. I don't think they make for great antagonists, but you can like go listen to uh, the Jonestown Massacre tapes, mm -hmm. right? They they tape that, and you can listen to uh, Jim Jones, yeah, like proselytizing even as people are are drinking the poison Kool Aid. Yeah, it wasn't Kool Aid, but yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but you you can listen to that stuff, um, and you can you know you can like read Hitler's speeches or like read biographies and stuff. I I find that really helpful. Ted Kaczynski, I was talking last time, the Unabomber, yeah. wrote The Industrial Society and Its Future, which is the Unabomber Manifesto, and he had been bombing these, like, universities and airports, and he sent bombs to, uh, like, mail bombs to computer scientists, because he was worried about technological progression. Right. Which I think is very, you know, for our in-group, is, is a very easy thing to empathize with, but then, like... We sort of have to get into this discussion about instrumental and terminal goals, right? Right. right. Uh, so he he believed that you know stopping this progress was of you know that was one of the most important things that a single individual could do. But then he decided to go about it through like sending mail bombs, to right? People. And this is usually with the means versus goals thing is is such a rich theme to explore in terms of what makes someone villainous or an, an antagonist to a protagonist. Like one of my favorite ways to construct a uh, antagonist is simply to make a protagonist of his own, of like write a story as if the character is a protagonist and simply make the 
people simply make the, the the people that they care about more important to them personally than the people that the actual protagonist of your story cares about. Yeah. Because day to day people tend to be quote unquote good people. Like you, there's an argument to be made that you know most people are average and good people are are rarer than than non good people, which you know depending on how you want to define it can can be argued. But more or less, most people will will not do on their face heinous things. But if given the option, um, kill even ten strangers versus one person that they love by the push of a button, uh, most people will say whether they do it or not is is luckily not tested very often. But most people will say like, yeah, it's very hard for me, but I'd probably care more about my, the person I love than 10 random strangers around the world. And that's, it's, it's like, you can argue that it's not the most enlightened quote unquote viewpoint, but it's definitely an understandable viewpoint. And I feel like there's so many ways to make villains in, in almost any setting to simply have that perspective of, it doesn't matter if you agree with what they're doing. You, if you can at least understand what they're doing it for, that's half the battle. Yeah. Even like a, a chief of a of a savage tribe that's going around conquering you know villages and and towns and grabbing land, like if the reason they're doing that is because their ancestral home has been struck by famine and their people are dying, like you know again not the best way to live in peace with your neighbors and and maybe ensure the long term survival of your people if you're pissing off kingdoms around you or something, but at least you understand like they're trying to keep their people alive. Yeah. So I think I think like a difference in terminal goals is a very good like that's a very good way to set up an antagonist. Mm-hmm. Um you know, they they just have different goals that cannot be reconciled. Um and then like the the different means I think is is also great cuz like you can have two characters who agree completely on like what the problem is and then they just have they have different methods of going about it where they just, you know, they don't even disagree on like moral grounds. Like you could set up a story that was the Unabomber and Yudkowsky, right? Mm-hmm. Who like, you'd have to steal man the Unabomber. He wasn't like this great thinker or anything. Um, a lot of what he put into his manifesto was like, he had read a lot of, um, he'd read a lot of books, and he was he was sort of doing his crazy synthesis of it. Right. But but you could you could make a protagonist antagonist pair where they are in complete agreement about terminal goals, uh, and then they're they're in complete disagreement about the means with which they should attempt to reach those goals. Right. I think that's difficult to do, and we tend to get antiheroes out of that. Uh, very often. Yeah, yeah. You definitely get uh, the Punisher mm-hmm. from that. Illidan from the Warcraft story before World of Warcraft massively messed up the lore in many ways uh, was one of my favorite anti-heroes simply because his the threat that he's facing is so large that doing practically anything in the attempt to stop it is justifiable from a certain point of view. And he's willing to engage in great personal sacrifice to stop them, not just make others pay the cost, which would make him more of a villain. And what makes, you know, if, you, if you've got a villain in, your, in the story that you want to write and you want to make them more relatable, just from their perspective, if you can, it depends on the size of the story again, which, which is why it's easier to make relatable car- villains. I keep saying villains when I mean to say antagonists, but yeah. Uh, w- 
relatable antagonist is easier when they're small scale, but if you if the scale is large enough, it actually isn't necessarily that hard if if they honestly believe that that's how to save the world or their people or whatever it is. And that's one of my true crime things um, was the Oklahoma City bombing was a uh, bombing in an abortion clinic. And I've always thought that if you honestly believe that. Yeah, if, if you honestly believe that, you know, like people are being murdered and it is basically government sanctioned. Yeah. Right. You would do something about it. Yep. Um, Not to radicalize anyone who's listening. Right. Right. Not to radicalize anyone who's listening. But I've I've always, you know, I've I've been sympathetic to that view while disagreeing with it. Of course. And I think yeah. that that is the sort of thing that makes for a really good antagonist. If if you can be sympathetic towards their thoughts and then disagree with both their conclusions and with the means by which they're attempting to mm-hmm. solve what they view as a conflict. Revol- revolutionary characters also tend to be any any anti-government character can be either a villain or a protagonist, depending on on how bad the, the government is in question. But um, you know, I, if, I think mm-hmm. one of the problems you run into there is that uh, you antagonists tend to be um, proactive and protagonists tend to be reactive, mm-hmm. and that makes for a it makes for a, a worse conflict a lot of the time because you know. Uh, the heroes just sitting around waiting for the villain to disrupt the status quo. Right, but you can have a protagonist actively seeking them, make it a race against the clock. Also, if your protagonist is another revolutionary and wants to change the society for the better, and the antagonist, you know, there can be two antagonists, maybe one is the is the nebulous government with its figurehead leader, but the main antagonist is um, someone who's trying to simply bring the world down to start afresh or something. Yeah. There's, you know, um, I'm going to answer this, the favorite antagonist question again, this time from outside of books, Magneto. Um, Magneto is, yeah, he's, he's, if, if, if I have to choose any one villain that I, I consider great in pretty much every possible aspect, it's, um, and again, I'm not a huge comic book reader, so I don't know the many interpretations of him. The one I'm going off of is the movies, bad as they were in many respects. X-Men 1, 2, and 3, and of course, um, in some respects, First Class and, and uh, Days of Future Past. But I didn't see Apocalypse. Um, but Magneto, um, as played by Ian McKellen, especially opposite Patrick Stewart uh, playing Xavier, like I could watch a hundred movies with these two characters as the as the protagonist and antagonist, because yeah. there is so much to Magneto's point of view that makes sense. And while you may disagree with his methods, he's proven right again and again by society around him. And like you understand why he's not just like changing his mind and be like, well, okay, I guess we'll try the peace thing. The other thing I, with the X Men movies, I've always been really sympathetic to the government. Mm-hmm. Oh um, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're like, oh, like you know, there are these people who basically always have, you know, they're always armed with weapons, and we can't take these weapons away from them. And you know, a lot of them aren't able to control it. And you know, it, <laughs> there's so many levels, really. Like as a, I would love to be a mutant. Don't get me wrong, but 
Um, there are so many levels where, as a as a muggle in a world of mutants, like there's just no there's no justifiable reason not to do something about mutants in your society because it's not even just that they have weapons, right? Like people can have weapons. It's that they can they can break people's rights without yeah. them even knowing about it. Like the weapons aren't even you know sure if a mutant can blow up a city that's that's a problem. Um, and if, especially if they can't control it, that's also a problem. But the fact that mutants can impersonate people, peer through walls, walk through walls, all that kind of stuff, just yeah, makes just, it, the society can't can't function when people can do that. Yeah. Well, and the thing is that the X Men movies then, you know, they take this reasonable stance, and then when they want when they need villains for it, they basically just push that reasonable stance into unreasonable territory. Yeah, they take an overzealous government or military person to, yeah. Yeah, that's just like, oh, hey, we're, we're going to kill all mutants. Yeah. They can't, they can't just stop and say, like, hey, if you're a mutant, you need to register. That's all we want. It's always like, oh, like, we're going to register you, and then we're just going to do, like, force, like, take away your powers or yeah. whatever. Which is actually still <laughs> pretty reasonable. Or, <laughs> the, or like, the third, is... the third movie's plot was simply, like, hey, if you're a mutant and you want to not be a mutant anymore, like, here you go. <laughs> but, yeah. like, it still was made into a, a problem because the people in which, you know, fair enough, sometimes, like, you, you, not sometimes, many times you will have corrupt or, or vengeful people, but, like, if you want a intelligent and empathetic antagonist resist the urge to make them evil yeah you don't you can stop at mutant registration or like voluntarily changing to not be a mutant mm-hmm. you don't need to go like oh i'm gonna use super Row and just kill every mutant in the world yeah if, if a mutant's going around breaking laws that humans you know would be punished for breaking go after them however you can but don't punish the innocent yeah and, and i think that's one of the risks with antagonists is that you can up, you, you just want to up the stakes mm-hmm. so you have like this bigger conflict and you're sort of sacrificing nuance and thought. Yeah. And I think the X-Men movies to some extent try to have their cake and eat it too there where they, they sort of like have a discussion about, you know, registration, right. prejudice and stuff. And then and then they just go straight to the, the outright villainy as mm-hmm. sort of the conflict that they can actually solve at the end of a movie rather than the conflict which is just going to exist forever in this world. Right. Right. Part of what makes Magneto such a great antagonist for me is that he has a positive relationship with the protagonist, Xavier. Yeah. He's got a history with him, but more than that, like there's genuine caring for each other as people. And as terrible as the third movie was, there was the scene where, spoiler alert, Xavier gets atomized by phoenix as she's going evil and there was just pure anguish on the part of of magneto as as he's seeing this happen um because this is his greatest foe but at the same time it's his oldest and, and greatest friend and like later on in the movie some young young mutant on magneto's side like bad mouths xavier and magneto just basically turns around and puts him down uh, he says something like yeah charles xavier has done more for mutants than you'll ever know my only regret is that he'll he won't live to see the world as it should be or something like that. Like this is how you make a villain that even if you want them to be stopped, you, like you, you care about them. Yeah. And you care about what they care about. And I think that's a good point that you have your protagonist who is opposed by your antagonist. But if you want a really good antagonist, you need to, you need to balance them against 
the protagonist mm-hmm. in some way. And that's where I'm going to cut this off because the recording went on way too long for just one episode. Thanks for listening and tune in next time for episode 10, Antagonist Part 2.